I don't know if this is appropriate to say, but I think the farther you get up front, the more spiritual you are in your worship. So I just want this front row in red seat just to stand up and turn around and just acknowledge the folks back there. This is our Tiny Hearts Beat team. And you'll have a chance to meet them out in the, the, uh, the foyer at their table. But I think it's important to be in prayer for this group because tomorrow they're going up to Western Washington University and they're going to make contact with some of the students. So now you see their faces, if we can be faithful to pray for them tomorrow as they um, bring the gospel, really, and the opportunity for life to some of the students up there. Thank you. Um, And also, we're going to be doing a love offering. There's a basket in the back. So after the service, if you want to contribute to that, we want to give you that opportunity as well, the love offering basket in the back at the close of the service. So thank you guys for being here, guys and gals, for being here with us. If you would take your scriptures and open up to Romans chapter 7 with me. Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. And as I introduced last week, we're entering into a very difficult and controversial text. And as I was thinking on this this morning, um, I realized there's a lot that needs to be said about words themselves. Stephen was actually presenting that out in a Sunday school class this morning, how important words are and the clarity of words. And in this particular case, the context of words. I was thinking back in the day when my uh, grandmother, uh, which was my mother, uh, my dad's mother, she was an unusual woman, and she made these cookies that came warm out of the oven, and she gave them to me and wanted to know my assessment. They're caraway seed cookies. Some of you older folks probably know something about that. I, of course, had to respond to my grandmother. These are amazing cookies. However, something happened between the time that they were warming out of the oven and they cooled off because there was like a catalyst that formed. Um, And me telling my grandmother, these are awesome cookies, they became Monty's favorite cookies in my grandmother's mind. Um, So she would bring a bag of them down to the car shop where my brothers and I worked in Stanwood, (laughs) and we would use them for cookie wars. I mean, they they were so hard... (laughs) They were like hockey pucks, and so we, we'd have these wars in the shop throwing these things because they didn't taste good. They were awfully hard, but they became my favorite cookie, I guess, in my grandmother's eyes. so she kept making them for me. A lot can be said for words and communication. I know that my wife and I, and some of you maybe as well, you like to watch lawyer shows. And one of the frustrating things about lawyer shows is that on TV at least, you have the lawyer that's attacking the witness and they will ask the witness a question and they want just a yes or no answer. And when the witness tries to use more words to explain their story, they're cut off by the lawyer and they just want a yes or no answer. It's frustrating to watch because we, as the viewers, know the whole scene behind the story. This is the case with the text behind Romans chapter 7. Context is essential. And there's much to be said of words. And if Paul were just to make a statement and not explain, we would be left in maybe a state of confusion. And hence lies the controversy behind this text. Words are important. Explanation is important. Context is critical. Join me as we read, beginning verse 12. Paul says, So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, Paul says. Rather, it was sin, in order that it may be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good, meaning the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly Sinful. Verse 14 is we're going to pick up this morning. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold in bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Father, I pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding as your spirit moves within our hearts so that we can see the truth, we can see the message that you have even in these words, and that as followers of Christ, believers in Christ, your spirit will allow us to be transformed by these words and practice these things, and may it be very evident to the world around us that we belong to you because we walk in your truth. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as noted last week on several occasions prior, I have stated what many already know about Romans chapter 7. It is a difficult chapter. Paul says some things that are challenging to us because of what he has written before. And this particular part of chapter 7, from verse 14 through the end of the chapter, is one of the most challenging that scholars wrestle with. And so last week I gave something of an introduction to this chapter, which um, expressed how I'm going to approach the interpretation or the opinions that, of scholars that I'm going to use this morning and next week in our understanding of this text. I believe, and we're going to see this in the text, that Paul is writing of himself here and his own conflict with sin in the present tense, and as such, he's telling us as believers this also is our conflict with sin. In verse 1 to 6, remember, Paul's uh, presentation on his challenge with sin and with obeying the law uh, he likened to a second marriage. He likened this to marriage and remarriage and where death occurs in marriage. And it, the point of the text was before Christ, we were all law keepers in the sense that we were living life on our own terms. The Jew, according to the, the keeping of the Mosaic law, but even the Gentile, even those of us that are non-Jews, we were living the law written on our own hearts, conscience, and we couldn't even keep that. We were all law keepers prior to Christ. And Paul said a death had to occur so that we can be wed to Christ. When we came to faith, we died to that old law keeping man and we were raised up a new creation in Christ, now raised up in grace. But Paul shows in verse 4 of chapter 7 that even then we weren't able to bear fruit for Christ before Christ, but when we were led to Christ, we were enabled to bear fruit for him, for God, for his glory. In other words, God made us law keepers, not to save us, but certainly for sanctification's sake. Because we're terrible at keeping the law, we understand we're going to need the Spirit's enabling grace. And that's where chapter 8 will take us. Chapter 7 looks almost hopeless for the Christian in the conflict that we're going to study this morning. But then comes chapter 8, the Spirit's enabling grace. Then beginning in verse 7 down through verse 13, Paul shows us the perspective that the believer is to have on the law. And he takes us a bit into his own testimony. And he asks the question starting in verse 7, what shall we say? Is the law sin? And he said, absolutely not. The problem is not with the law. And then he goes on to show from his own experience what the law does, what the law was intended to do, was to show man his sin before God and that we're under judgment. We're under the condemnation of death because of our failure to keep the law. The law not only showed sin, but it showed the sinfulness of the sinner. When the law came, it provoked man to sin all the more. 
It's like telling the young child, don't take that cookie, unless it's a caraway seed cookie. Don't take that cookie. He's going to take the cookie. The, the seed has been planted to sin. And so the law did a second thing. It not only showed us what sin is, and that man is guilty before God because of that sin, but it showed just how sinful or utterly sinful, as it says in verse 13, the sinner is. God gave us a law that we could not keep. He gave us a law that would provoke us to sin all the more. Why? It was to point us to a Savior. And that's what Paul said in verse 7 to 13. This is the perspective that we're having on law. But now as we move into verse 13 down through verse 25, and we're focusing starting in verse 14 because we used verse 13 last week as a bit of an introduction. But here we see the believer's conflict with keeping the law, our conflict with sin itself. And the point that Paul is going to show, that conflict did not end when we came to Christ. And I think every one of us that is a believer here understands that perspective. Our conflict with sin did not end when we came to Christ. The passage before us is without question describing a conflict with sin and with keeping the commandments of God. And as I noted last week, this passage also has a number of challenging statements that has caused scholars to wrestle with who this text is describing is Paul describing himself, or is he describing somebody that was an unbeliever? Is he describing a believer here? There are a lot of different interpretational challenges. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective that Paul is indeed talking about those that are regenerate, true believers. Paul's talking about himself. And if we agree that Paul is writing about Christians because of the struggle with sin, is this a young Christian that is still carnal and hasn't quite got the grasp on uh, uh, obedience to Christ? Or because of the personal pronouns used consistently in this text in the present tense, is Paul talking about a mature believer as himself? Now, for the reasons that I gave last week in my introduction to this passage, I am taking the position that most other conservative scholars do that Paul is describing himself in the present tense as a mature believer, even a seasoned apostle. And in describing his own contest with sin, Paul is also teaching the church what we already know to be true about our own walk of faith, and that is that we all wrestle with the desires of the flesh so long as we're in this life. We're all going to wrestle with this, and we know this to be true. We'll be looking at the challenges that Paul brings up in the wording that he uses as we move forward in this text, and we'll address them as they come. But understanding who this passage refers to is a critical detail that will determine how we apply this passage to our own walk of faith. So it's worthwhile to examine the words carefully as we work our way through the text, it is also important for us to know the point of this text. Again, the subject here continues to be the law and how that law re uh, relates to the believer and to the believer's sanctification. Now, as already stated, the tone of this portion of Romans 7 is that of conflict with the law of God and the sin that violates that law. So our first consideration as we look at verse 14 to 17 this morning will be the believer's conflict with a spiritual law that is given to a people of flesh. And that's the point Paul makes beginning verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. It's that verse right there that causes already some concern based on what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. So we'll deal with that. But there's a significant transition beginning with verse 14 in regard to the personal pronouns. I stated back in our study of 7 to 13, those verses, Paul used a lot of personal pronouns, but he throws in some we's as well, some, some plural pronouns, so that he includes other believers. But it's all written in past tense. This is what Paul was prior. Well, he was still a Pharisee, a law keeper, one that felt his salvation was secure in his obedience to the law. That's back when he didn't have a proper understanding. He didn't have the right perspective of the law until the Savior met him on the road to Damascus. And he spent three days in the city of Damascus. And his eyes were open. The scales came off. And the Spirit of God revealed to him that he couldn't possibly keep the law in order to be justified before God. 
None of us have that capability. And he came to that understanding of the law that it wasn't given to save us because we can't keep it. If anything, it was given to show us we needed salvation in someone else other than ourselves. The Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. So he speaks, verse 7 to 13, in past tense, but a change is made again. Verse 14, he puts everything now in the present tense, speaking of himself. And therefore, I believe that Paul is giving his personal testimony, now very clearly written as a mature apostle, telling us, I still struggle with this, and I will to the end of my days. Why? Because I'm a man of flesh. And all of us that are believers identify with that because we still struggle with sin. Verse 14, Paul shows us the identification of this conflict. He identifies in just a a couple of statements or one sentence, if you will, what the struggle is. We all should know, Paul says, that the law is spiritual. He's writing to the believers in Rome And the churches in Rome should respond by saying, yeah, we know what you're saying here, Paul. We know the law is spiritual. And from that aspect of it being spiritual, we can presume maybe Paul is suggesting that the law was given to deal with our spiritual needs because it does. But that's not entirely what Paul is saying. Again, we look to the context. He starts with the word for in verse 14 which means he's reflecting back on what he had just said. He's now going to give us a cause or an explanation for what he just said. And what did he just say? Verse 12. The law is good. It is holy. It is righteous. The spiritual aspect of the law is the very character of the law, which comes from the character of God himself. And that was the comment that John Murray in his commentary wrote. Paul is referencing the spiritual nature of the law in verse 14 as that of divine origin and character. It's spiritual. The law is of the character of God himself. So we know this as a church, right? When God speaks a law to us, when he gives us a commandment, it is a reflection of his holiness, his righteousness, and his goodness. And with that in mind, it makes now sense why Paul says that the law is spiritual because he's contrasting it with something in this conflict. And that is the flesh of our humanity. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But there's a problem with our flesh. And so he says, what is a startling statement for the Apostle Paul to make, but I am a flesh sold in bondage to sin. That's a hard statement to wrestle with, considering what Paul has just written in chapter 6 and verse 6. When we came to faith in Christ, remember, the old man of sin, the old law-keeping man died. And we are raised up with Christ, no longer a slave to what? Sin. No longer a slave to sin. So now Paul is saying something rather stunning. He's sold in bondage to sin as a regenerate, mature apostle. And this is where, again, context is important. We go back to chapter 6 and we recall what did Paul say about that person that is no longer a slave to sin? Who has been freed? It's not the fleshly body, but the spirit of the believer has been raised up and made new in Christ. And Paul made a clear distinction, remember, between that spirit that is no longer in bondage to sin. And if you look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 6, he made a distinction between the spiritual nature of the man that has been raised and the fleshly body, the members of the body that can still sin. And so Paul warns, even though we've been raised up spiritually in Christ, we're alive in Christ, no longer in bondage to sin. Be careful here, he says, because the members of our body can still sin. And so he warns us in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 6, there's a distinction clearly made. He's making that same distinction here in chapter 7 and verse 14. Even though he is a born-again apostle of God, of Christ himself, He can still say, I am a flesh. The members of my humanity are still there. And guess what? 
They still struggle with sin. But why does he say sold in bondage to sin? That seems like a pretty extreme, almost contradictory statement to what he said in chapter 6. And again, that distinction is important. It's a distinction that is made here between being in the flesh as an unsaved person. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 5, notice what he says here. For while we were in the flesh, in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit of death. That's a description of the unsaved individual. That's a description of us before we came to faith in Christ. We were in the flesh. But Paul makes a change in wording in verse 14. I am of flesh. He's no longer saying I'm in flesh because he is in Christ. Spiritually, the man Paul is in Christ. But physically, he is still of flesh. So long as we are in this life, sin will dwell in us that is in our fleshly existence as verse 18 confirms. Now, this may be difficult to verbalize or difficult to put into words, but every true believer, I think, knows what Paul is articulating here. We understand what is meant by the desires of our flesh that are in conflict with the laws of God, laws that are holy, righteous, and good. And what Paul means by the matter of bondage is that we are bound to this body of flesh so long as we live in this life, even though spiritually we are no longer slaves to sin, as chapter 6 made very clear to us. The believer, the spirit of the believer has been set free from that bondage. But the members of our fleshly bodies are bound to sin slavery. And a way for us to put this into perspective, one way we, we can help understand Paul's use of a believer's bondage here in verse 14 is to think in terms of our inability to stop sinning. As a Christian, our inability to stop sinning. As sincere as we might be to say so, it would be an absolutely untrue statement for any of us to say at this moment, from this moment forward, I should say, to the end of my life, I will never sin again. Is there any believer here that's willing to make that statement? And I would suggest no, not one of us would. Why? Because we can't do it. We can't stop sinning. The body of flesh is still sold in bondage to sin. That's what Paul is saying here. It's what he means in verse 14. Yes, spiritually, we've been freed from that bondage. But the flesh, it still prompts us to pursue the desires of our heart, which oftentimes are contrary to the laws of God. And from the very fact that we can say, honestly, I can't stop sinning. I won't stop sinning. It marries well with what Paul says here. The flesh is still in bondage. We're still in this conflict. And as we grow in Christ, hopefully the flesh becomes increasingly more under the control of the Spirit of God. As we mature in our faith and we desire less to disobey and to obey the desires of the flesh. Hopefully there's a diminishing aspect to those desires of the flesh. Nonetheless, even if we should grow to the maturity of the Apostle Paul, we would not say, I will no longer sin forever. Paul is saying, I can't make that statement. And if we were foolish enough to make such a claim, if Paul was foolish enough to make such a claim, the Apostle John would step in quickly and say, now wait a minute, Paul, 1 John chapter 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if Paul, the mature man of God, would say, I sin no more, John would stay, step in and say, you're deceiving yourself, Paul. But Paul does not say that. In fact, he says, I am a flesh. I'm sold in bondage to sin. He's recognizing a sin problem that you and I as believers are going to struggle with until we exit this life and we're brought into the glorious presence of Christ. Our battle with sin is a lifelong conflict. There is a bondage to the sin in this for us. So long as we're of flesh. So long as we are of flesh. We're in Christ. We're of flesh. Now, if this statement is still 
a, tr- a problem for us. Paul is now going to say, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. And he does so with verse 15 and 16. The conflict is experienced. If, if we really struggle with the statement that we are a flesh and we're sold in bondage to sin, and over against that is the righteousness and the goodness of the law of God, and we're in conflict with that law, it's almost in verse 15 that Paul is saying, do you question my claim that you are a flesh and you're sold in bondage to sin? Is that unsavory? Does that sound unsettling to you? Well, then just look at how you live your life as a spirit-filled believer. And every one of us can ask ourselves this question. If you're a believer here today, you are a spirit-filled believer. Do you sin? Can you stop sinning? We say yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, I sin. And no, I cannot stop. We have the power to say no to individual sins as they come. But it would be entirely unbiblical for us to say, I cannot sin any longer. I stop today. It would be unbiblical to say that. And Paul is making that assessment of himself. So he said, if you really struggle with verse 14, what I've said there, this is how I would answer it. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I hate, I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Now again, note at the beginning of verse 15, the word for. He's about to explain verse 14, right? Let me give you a cause. Let me give you a proof of what I've just said. The internal conflict that we see in these verses are, again, not the words of an unregenerate man. No unsaved person is going to answer the problem of verse 14 with words like we see in verse 15 and 16. Because the unsaved is happy with their sin. They have no regard for the laws of God. Why are these people about to face a conflict? It's because the unsaved world sees life entirely differently than God sees life, the creator of life. Unsaved man is not going to say what Paul has said here. For what I am doing, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. The world sins against the law of God, not because they hate it. They they don't hate what they're doing. They hate the law of God. They love what they're doing. They have no regard for God's law. So the unregenerate person isn't going to articulate those words in verse 15 and 16. We know that sin has its appeal, an appeal that captures the attention and the desires of even the believer. But only the believer, when he violates the law of God, is going to say, I'm not doing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the things I hate. Those are the words of the redeemed of God. And how do we know as Christians that we are of flesh sold in bondage to sin, as verse 14 says? Is the old saying, the proof is in the pudding? Verse 15 is telling us the proof is in the practice. Just look at yourself. You still struggle with sin as a Christian. That's the evidence of what Paul is saying in verse 14, that we are of flesh and we're sold in bondage to sin. The desire of our will as those raised up in Christ, is to walk in the righteousness of God's laws. We agree together. The law of God is spiritual, meaning righteous, holy, and good are the commandments of God. So we affirm what Paul is saying here. I don't understand why I do the things that I do as a Christian. Paul is coming from the perspective of a man that's filled with the Spirit, as we are. And now in the Spirit... We have the enabling grace of God to not disobey, but now to obey. And we love the laws of God. So when we disobey, how many times have you wrestled with that? Why did I just do that? I know better. I have the power within me, in Christ, to not disobey. And because of my love for God's law, I want to do what's right. And yet I don't. At least at times. Notice the word, I do not understand. 
a negative. That word understand really means to know. And the word know in God's word has an element of setting our affections on something or someone. When we say God knows me and I know God, that's speaking about a loving, affectionate intimacy between me and God. When the Old Testament speaks about a man knowing his wife, there's a, an intimacy and affections that's being acknowledged there. That's the word that Paul is using here, but he's using it in the negative sense. I don't know. I don't understand. So there's kind of two aspects to this. Number one, Paul is saying there's something troubling my affections here. But there's also a, a mental challenge. John Murray, in his commentary, writes, we must not suppress the cognitive element so as to exclude it. Paul is talking about his affections to some degree, but he's also telling us, I don't entirely understand, or I'm puzzled, or I'm bewildered as to why I would disobey that which I love. I'm in Christ. I've been given this power in Christ through the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, and yet I've just done something that I hate. His affections are challenged, but mentally struggling as well. Murray goes on to write, there is still emphasis upon the intelligence and understanding which the apostle set his heart upon, that in which he was frustrated by a contrary power. That's a very wordy statement. But Paul here is acknowledging, I have this power of the Spirit, but there's another power at work here. It's the power of the flesh. It's the influence of the flesh. And every one of us as Christians know that, don't we? Every time we struggle with sin and we fall to sin, there's a power to the, of, of lust, there's a power of desire that's still in the flesh. And it lures us away from the greater power that we have at our access. And Paul's going to talk about that greater power in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. But right now, he's just talking about one aspect of our sanctification. We're still going to struggle with sin. It's still a problem for us. And I believe that he's warning us so that we don't neglect this conflict. Be aware, the enemy is out there. The flesh is still here. Paul is admitting here of being puzzled that the power of sin within him was able to overtake his love for the law of God. He's bewildered. He hates the sin he practices. It is not what he wants to do as a spiritually alive person, but his flesh is still willing to do what his spirit does not want. And I think we can identify with that intellectual bewilderment as the same time the trouble that it causes the affection of our heart. We love God. Our love is not perfect. We love his laws because we know when God gives us a commandment, when we look at the commandments of Christ for his church, we know they're good, they're righteous. It's a reflection of his holy character. And yet we disobey and we're puzzled by that. Both our affections and intellectually. And in verse 16, when he breaks the commandments of God that he does not want to do, that displeasure in sin shows his agreement with the law. The very fact that he's displeased that he's broken the law. He said it's making a declaration that I believe the law is indeed spiritual. It is righteous. It's holy. It's good. His displeasure in sin is a confession of the spiritual nature of the law. Proof of his love for obedience is that he does not want to disobey. In fact, he hates it that he does disobey. The problem is not the law, as Paul has stated before. In fact, he stands in full support of the law as a work of the Spirit of God. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And it brings us to verse 17, where Paul brings us to the source of this conflict. It sounds almost too simplistic. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Here Paul makes a summary statement of the conflict the believers face with their efforts to live fully under God's holy law. Contrary to the idea that this passage might describe the unregenerate, the very fact that Paul says that it was no longer he breaking the law tells us he's speaking of himself as a man that was transformed by the gospel. And it takes right back to chapter 6. We put our faith in Christ. That old man of sin dies. The law keeper is dead. 
He's not coming back to life. The spirit of that one has come back to life in Christ, a different person. The law keeper is dead. The law breaker is dead. But the flesh is still there. The humanity, the humanness of the believer is still present. So Paul is telling us in verse 17, I'm recognizing I'm a new creation in Christ. It's not me that's doing this. It's not the spiritual man in Christ that is no longer a slave to sin. He's been freed from sin. But there's still a problem with his humanity, his flesh. The new man in Christ was not the one disobeying the commandments. He's describing himself as a spiritually changed man. He still has occasion to break the laws he did before in Christ. But now that he is in Christ, his spirit has been freed from the bondage of sin. Paul is, as is true of all believers, he's now a man who loves the law. Not as that which could save him, but the law that was given to him by God's grace that enables him to keep that law for his own sanctification, for his own growth. When he does break the law that he loves as a believer, it is because of the sin that dwells within him. I I want you to notice what Paul is not saying about his problem with sin. He's not making excuses for himself. He's not saying, the devil made me do it. He's not saying... I'm a criminal because of the culture. A culture has forced me to this lifestyle. He's not blaming his sin on the way he was raised, on his poverty, or because of the way someone has treated him so badly. He broke the laws of God as a Christian because of sin that was still in him. Paul is affirming what he has already told us back in chapter 6, that the believer has died to the old man of sin, is raised up in newness of life in Christ, in the likeness of the resurrected Christ. That's verse 4 and 5 of chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 4, the believer has died to the old futile efforts at acquiring salvation, earning salvation by law-keeping. He died to that. And he's been raised up to be joined to a new spouse, the living, the resurrected Savior under his reign of grace. And now, now under that reign of grace, he is able to be fruitful to God. In other words, he's able to obey. And therefore, in verse 17, the person that is no longer the one violating God's law is the one that has experienced the transforming grace of salvation in Christ. The believer is now capable of obedience by the power of spirit that dwells within him. Yet there is still this battle to obey the law of God since sin still dwells within every believer. I'd like to bring up the board words by Leon Morris. I love the way he describes this sin that still dwells within us. Sin is pictured, he writes, as having taken up residence in Paul. This is not the honored guest, nor the pain tenant, but the squatter. Not legitimately there, but very difficult to eject. Isn't that a good way of seeing the sin that dwells in us? It's not a welcome guest, but it's one we have to live with. And the reason that Paul is telling us this is so that every believer goes to battle this fleshly nature. This is so contrary to where a modern Christian climate is today in this nation. How do we look at law? How do we look at obedience? It's all about love and grace. And the, the expressions love and grace seem to reject this idea about obedience and God's law as if they're not part of grace. Don't judge anyone. We're hearing that. And there is a bad way to judge, to be sure. And oftentimes Christians can be very judgmental. But there's a new attitude towards the law of God, the righteousness of God, the obedience to Christ. Paul is warning us, Don't give up the fight. Be advised. Sin is still there. It's an unwelcome guest. It's a squatter to be sure, but it's tough to eject. And that's going to bring us into chapter 8 again, where we look at the power that is given to the believer to overcome sin. It's not going to be done autonomously. We're not going to do this on our own strength, but we don't have to. The physical flesh itself is not that which is evil. That's important for us to see. It's not the physical flesh that's evil. It's the sin that dwells within it. 
we can most certainly use it for evil purposes, our bodies that is, as we saw in chapter 6, using the members of our body in sinful ways. But the body itself is not the problem. It is the sin that dwells within. Now Paul's going to continue this explanation of the believer's conflict and the struggle that we have to live by the laws of God in the verses to come. But we're going to stop here this morning, and I'm just going to draw some conclusions, some summary statements, some truths that reflect on our walk of faith. How do we take a verse, uh, verses like this and apply them to our own lives? Paul is identifying our conflict. He understands, as we do, that the commandments given to us in God's word, they're a f- reflection of God's character, his righteousness. They're of divine origin. And those that are true believers love those laws. We want to walk in those laws. We want to walk in obedience to Christ. But I think it's important to see in this conflict, and this will be my first statement, the believer's bondage to sin is not describing habitual sin. It is not describing habitual sin. Yes, we have to live with this flesh till the day we die. But there is a tension between what we read in Romans 7 and what is described as the fruit of a genuine believer in so many other New Testament passages. Even Jesus taught that we will know who truly belongs to him by what? The fruit. So we understand that not only is the inner man changed for the glory of Christ and we're raised up in Christ, no longer in bondage to sin, but a change can and must occur in the fleshly nature also. Paul is only describing, remember here, the conflict with sin, but he's about to show us the power we can have over sin. So we don't want to confuse this bondage to sin as a description of habitual sin because we, when we see somebody that claims to be Christian and they're living for years in habitual sin, there's a very good chance they're not truly a believer. And that's one of the evidences that John brings up in the verses that were read to us at the beginning of the service this morning. It's again where chapter 8 of Romans is going to take us. Paul is not teaching the church that a believer's obedience to God's law is no different than an unbeliever. He's not telling us we're the same as the world. He's only saying this is our conflict. All Paul is explaining to the church is that believers will struggle with sin so long as we're in this life. We have something the world of unbelievers does not have. We have the Spirit of Christ who enables us to walk in obedience to God and to overcome the flesh. The world does not have that, but you and I as believers do. The Apostle John shows us this same conflict, yet he uses different words. Again, 1 John 1, verse 8, the Christian is told that they will have sin in this life, and to say otherwise is a deception. He then continues in chapter 2, and I'm referring to 1 John, chapter 2, John lets believers know that he's telling us these things so that we may not sin. Paul's doing the same thing. He's telling us what he does in chapter 7, so that we may not sin. John writes, the one who says, in verse 4 through 6 in chapter 2, the one who says, I have come to know him, to know Christ, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and this is talking about a continual keeping, a continual practice of keeping his word. In him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Paul is going to show us what it means in chapter 8 of Romans, what it means to abide in Christ and to have victory over sin. John clearly understood and taught the same thing about the believer's conflict with sin. To deny we have sin is a lie. It's a deception. But at the same time, we are no longer in the flesh. We're in Christ. And if we abide in Christ, as the scripture teaches, we can and we will walk in the same manner as Christ walked. All this to say, Paul is teaching the church about the conflict that we face as Christians so that, as John writes, we will not sin. And we win this battle over sin as we're led by the Spirit, enabled by his divine power. The believer is in conflict with sin, but does not live habitually 
in sin. And this is how we know we belong to Christ. Second, the believer is to obey what commandments? This is a question. The believer is to obey what commandments? One of the discussions that we had in our small group this last week is which of the laws apply to the church today? Paul doesn't even tap into that. But it's a legitimate question we have to ask ourselves. We understand the laws of conscience that Gentiles are subject to that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 2. And we might wrongly assume that the law of Moses does not apply to us because after all it was given to who? The Jews. I'm not a Jew. Do I have to do the law? But this is not the case as chapter 7 shows. The law is holy. The commandments are holy and righteous and good. And if this is true of the law, then all men are subject to what God declares as holy and just. But does this mean we're going to be held to all the Old Testament laws? Should we, should, we, we, should we be celebrating the festivals or sacrificing bulls and goats? Everything that was expected of the Jews? What commandments does Paul envision when he teaches the church that the law is good and to be practiced? I recall many years ago a professor teaching a New Testament survey class that I was taking answering that specific question. And his answer was, and this is going to be a brief editorial on his response, we obey God's laws until God says stop. We obey God's laws until God says stop. At the time we were studying the book of Hebrews, and the professor went on to say that in regard to the sacrificial system, the book of Hebrews is God telling his people stop. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. It never could take away sin, the author of Hebrews writes. And it's because of the blood of Christ that was the sacrificial atonement for all sins that we don't sacrifice anymore. So, yes, those laws were relevant until God said stop. Another passage takes us even further, and I'd like you to go into Colossians chapter 2 for just a moment because we took a brief look at this in our small group study. Because it's a legitimate question to ask of ourselves. What of the Old Testament law are we supposed to be keeping today if what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is true? If the law is holy and, and righteous and good, therefore we should be doing that which is holy, righteous, and good. What of the Old Testament law? Okay, it would take away the sacrifices. We're not sacrificing bulls and goats anymore. Because Hebrews says stop. God is saying no. After Christ, his sacrifice, his blood... There's no more sacrifice necessary. In fact, it would be an offense to the blood of the Savior if we continued to do so. In Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 16 and 17. Paul writes, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's no way that Jewish man would write those words if some elements of the law were still relevant today. The festivals, the dietary restrictions, the Sabbath celebrations. Paul is saying those things were a mere shadow, a representation of what is to come. And what is that? It's the Messiah. We have the substance, do we not? We've been brought to the Messiah himself, to his sacrifice. So many of these things in the Old Testament law, God is saying, they ceased with my son. You now look to him. You worship him. You obey him. And that leaves those other laws, and we can't go into every one of them, but I hope we see here that those Old Testament laws still apply to us today until God says stop. So I don't sacrifice bulls anymore. But I still obey the Ten Commandments that tell me about what God expects of me as a believer. I still obey the other laws given throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Every commandment that comes from God is good, holy, and just. And I obey them all except where God says stop. Now that's maybe a brief overview of every single law that we might look at and consider whether or not I should be obeying it. But I hope we get the principle. I hope it's clear enough. We obey God until God says enough. And third, 
the believer's conflict is identified so that we fight. And I think this is obvious to us as we go back to chapter 7. Why this exposition from verse 14 to 25 of Romans chapter 7 is taught to the church on conflict. Paul is opening up with detail and some controversial words so that it makes clear to us we are still engaged in a battle and you will do so every morning that you wake up. And the problem with many of us that fall back into sin is that we take it too casually. We don't think of this life as a battle, a conflict. We're people of grace. And the, the, the theme of our day seems to be we live in liberty as Christians. Almost as if we can do what we want because grace covers. And Paul has already dealt with that in chapter 6, didn't he? Do we continue to sin because of grace or so that grace would abound? Most certainly not. If anything, grace has made us law keepers. We obey Christ because his commandments are holy and good and righteous. And therefore, Paul identifying what he does in the conflict is showing us that we have to be fighters, warriors. If we confess with Paul that the law of God is good and the commandment is good and holy and righteous, then it is understood that we walk in obedience to that law. And again, this has become a temp contemporary message within the modern church in our nation, the false notion that God is not all that concerned with law and obedience. He's just about mercy and grace. And that's just a perversion of God's grace because it's his grace that is making us law keepers. It makes us capable to obey him. This is not a bondage that we should not be concerned about. Rather, his instruction, Paul's instruction, is meant to stir up the spirit-filled believer to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Romans 8, verse 4. Walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. In other words, we're in a fight. A fight for the sin that lies within us. We're granted the power to confront the flesh, and that is exactly what the Holy Spirit intends to do. He gives us the power. Father in heaven, we thank you for this testimony by your servant, Paul, who's opening up for us the reality that I think most of us as believers know and understand, that we are in a battle with sin. But you've given us the law that is spiritual. It's a reflection of your character and your nature. And I pray that you would grant us sensitive hearts to desire, to love, to be impassioned, to walk in your ways. Because they, that is the path of righteousness. It's the path of holiness for your people. And it's a good path. So help us in this contest, in this conflict that we have, each one with sin. For your glory, for your honor, and because we carry the name of your son. And we pray this together in that name. Amen. Please stand with me.